We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Before we get to today's text, I want to begin with some love poetry. Do any of you read a lot of love poetry? Yeah? I got this idea from Tim Mackey. Do you know, you know there's love poetry in the Bible? So here's what we'll do. I will give you a line of love poetry from the Bible, and uh, you try to guess where in the Bible this is. And if you're brave, you can whisper your guess uh, to your neighbor. Uh, you don't have to, but uh, here, here it is. Here's the line, and we won't show you where this is. We won't show you the reference. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Uh, can you guess what, uh, what book of the Bible that's from? Yeah, so it's a trick question. Uh, some of you, you, you know your Bible, you're familiar with the Bible, and you know that there is an entire book of love poetry in the Bible called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And uh, you're wrong. It's not from Song of Solomon. Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it's from uh, an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. What's he talking about? Let me read to you the, the poem. In Isaiah 5, the prophet uses this poetry to express the message that God has for the people. Basically, Isaiah has to announce this dreadful thing that judgment is coming through Assyria and ultimately Babylon, but, but, but God has done everything needed for the people. He's trying to get this across. So he doesn't just state the message. He does it in, in well, in a love poem. Isaiah 5, here it is, Isaiah 5, 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Can you imagine? Look at all the owner did. Do you know that to dig out a massive wine press, very expensive, two, basically two huge pits in the ground. You dump all the grapes in one and you crush them, you stomp on them, and there's a little conduit that leads to a lower pit and all the juice flows down into that. Massive undertaking. Look at all he did. Built a watchtower, cut out a wine press. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit, rotten fruit, stinky fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now, here's where it really sounds like a modern love song. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Doesn't that sound like love poetry? What, what else could I have done? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. Remember, Isaiah is getting across to the people Babylon's coming, the temple's going to be crushed. The city's going to be leveled, and the temple's going to be destroyed. It's a word of judgment. So now he explains the little poem in verse 7. Isaiah says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty, and you could have guessed this, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. Went for the good grapes, the harvest of righteousness, and said bloodshed for righteousness but he heard cries of distress. And credit again to Tim Mackey for pointing this out, but Isaiah ends with the poem with a little rhyming couplet. Obviously not in English, but in Hebrew. In Hebrew, I'll show you the Hebrew words. He looked for justice, which is mishpat, but saw only bloodshed. So he looked for mishpat, but instead found mishpach. The word for righteousness is tzedakah, and the distress, tzedakah. So he looked for tzedakah, 
but instead only se'aka. Ends with a little beautiful rhyme. And, and of course, there's a lot there to, to think about that. He's looking for the mishpat, but instead he finds this mishpach. It's amazing. One letter makes all the difference. Like the, the, when, it, when a community is together and healthy, there's, there's righteousness, there's, there's justice, but one sin, one little letter difference, and instead you get bloodshed and cries of distress. So there's a lot baked into that. But nonetheless, just Isaiah, I just want to show you, Isaiah uses love poetry to get across his message that otherwise people would have ignored, that time is up, judgment is coming, and God says enough's enough when it comes to injustice and evil, and he is going to use Babylon to get the people's attention, and it's going to end with the temple destroyed. Poetry does that, you know. Parable and poetry and story have a way of getting at our hearts. Every preacher knows this. Our, our defenses are up when we feel like somebody's preaching at us. That's true. Even as I'm, every Sunday, when I'm pre- every preacher knows this. I'm preaching and I'm preaching. There's a certain look on the face. But the minute I say, you know, once upon a time, suddenly everybody's like, all right, I'm listening, right? What is it? It's that, it's sort of like that side door. It's like our defenses are down with poetry and parable, Okay? So, somebody may say, okay, you've just taken us to Isaiah 5, love poetry. Where are we going? Pastor, do you, are you going to get us back to Matthew 21? Maybe. I'll try. Here, <laughs> yes, of course. So, 700 years later, got it? 700 years ago, you got the prophet Isaiah, and he's got a message for the leaders of Israel, and his message is, look, in a few years, they're going to come and destroy this great city. Like, like kill a lot of people, and crush God's temple to the ground. And that's exactly what happened. Fast forward, and just like Isaiah, Jesus in Matthew 21 is saying, look, look, in in a short while, the chief priests and the elders and the leaders, they keep wanting a kind of Messiah that's going to fight Rome. They want a warrior Messiah. They want a a, a leader like Barabbas that's going to cause a military rebellion. And I'm telling you, you're going to choose that kind of Messiah, and it is going to lead to a a, a destruction. It's going to lead to Rome burning your your temple to the ground. And that's exactly what happened. Now, it occurs to me, everybody needs a little historical timeline fact to help you understand, really, really the book of Matthew and and the New Testament. Everybody needs to know this. Some of you know this already, but if you don't, you might want to jot down some important dates. Jesus is preaching around 33 AD, right? He is predicting over and over, look, they're they're coming, and, and, and this is a word of judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Rome crushes a Jewish uprising and destroys the temple in 70 AD. So what is that? Less than 40 years after Jesus predicts all this, that's exactly what happened. That's why when you read all this stuff in here about the destruction of the temple and what's coming, Jesus is predicting. Yes, he's talking about a, big, a lot of big spiritual things, end time things, but he's also talking about what's literally going to happen. Around uh, Passover in 70 AD, rebellion grew and grew. There was a siege, a great toll on human life. Lots of people killed, enslaved, and uh, large parts of the city destroyed. Ultimately, most famously, the temple destroyed in 70 AD. You you, you need to have that fact in your mind to really uh, help you understand Matthew. Historically, at 70 AD, sure enough, the temple temple was destroyed. It also explains why Jesus was going around. Remember when the disciples were like, look at all these beautiful buildings. Jesus like, I'm telling you, not a single stone's going to be on top of each other here. I'm like, what are you talking about, right? And he was talking about his own body resurrected, but he was saying he's the new temple around which the center of worship would, would begin. So 
I hope that's helpful to you. What's my point? Jesus in 33 AD and Isaiah 700 years before that both have to deliver a difficult message to the leaders of Israel. They both use poetic parable language. And so I want to look at Jesus' parable today and find out what it has to do with us. So the first thing, since, we've, uh, uh, since last week uh, I had a bye week, as they say in football, uh, and we <laughs> I wasn't able to, uh, to be in Matthew with you, let's reorient where we are. Let's look at the three, remember there were three prophetic sign acts. Do you remember this? Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem in Matthew 21. Then on this massive road trip, he finally arrives in Jerusalem. And uh, in fact, I've got a slide here that shows the three prophetic sign acts. First, the triumphal entry. Do you remember? Then the turning over the tables in the temple, and then the cursing of the fig tree. Does this ring a bell? In fact, one, uh, one really sweet uh, story. Uh, I, ha- I had a great privilege to officiate a funeral of uh, uh, our dear brother uh, who passed uh, th- this week. And uh, as I met with him, uh, he said to me um, on, uh, I guess that would have been just a few days before he, he died. He said, uh, Pastor, I... Uh, I'm glad I got to see uh, Jesus make it to Jerusalem in your Matthew series. And he said, uh, I don't, uh, according to what the doctors are telling me, I don't think I'm going to make it to the end of the series, through the end of your Matthew series. So he says, if you'll excuse me, I'll just get the, uh, I'll get the rest of the story from Matthew. <laughs> Didn't he say that? Didn't he say that? And can I tell you something? He wasn't being sentimental. He was absolutely right. Like, that's the Christian hope that I think a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people are like, oh, that's nice for him that that gives him comfort. He wasn't saying it because it gives him comfort. He's saying it because it gives him, it's true. And because it's true, it's comforting. Like, his faith is in the risen Lord Jesus. Like, he will get the rest of the story from Matthew. And he will be able to point out a lot that his preacher got wrong. And I'm sure. And that's okay. That's all right. So he made it to Jerusalem. You see these signs. And then he follows, watch this, he follows three prophetic signs. Because that's what these prophets would do, right? He comes in the triumphal entry like a king. He turns over the tables. He curses the fig tree as, as a way of saying, judgment's here. Time's up. And, and the temple system's on its way out. And I'm on, on what, what's on the way in. And then he does this. After the three signs, he gives three parables. Gives three parables. The first, and you can see these in Matthew 21. Even if you glance in your Bible, you can see. The first is a parable about two sons. One that said, I'm going to go work in the uh, field, but then doesn't. Yeah, 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 I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good with the father, but then doesn't actually do. The other says, I'll never do it, or or, 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 I won't do it, but then actually doesn't, goes and does it. And Jesus points out, yeah, when John the Baptist came, all you that are like, yeah, we're good with God, you end up not doing the will of the Father. And everybody who listened to John the Baptist repented. And he says, these, 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 Jesus says, these tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom, and you're not. Who's he talking to? The leaders of Israel. Because you just assume you're good with God, and you didn't have a need to repent. So he aims three parables directly at the leaders. Don't ever forget this. Everything we're going to read today is aimed at the leaders of Israel. The first were the two sons. I have a lot to say about that, but if I preach all three of these, we'll we'll never leave. So uh, we'll deal with this second one today, the parable of the tenant farmers, how they rejected the prophets and Jesus. And then he's going to, in, in 22, tell his third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, showing that they'll reject the messenger Jesus will send. We're going to focus just on that. Second one, but I need you to orient yourself to know we're in the middle of these three parables. Okay, 
Does everybody feel like we, we, we understand where, where we are in this text? Okay, then we're going to focus on this second one. Remember, Jesus is using a parable, just like Isaiah, a judgment to the leaders of Israel, a word of judgment, and we'll just look at that second parable, the two farmers. Here we go. It starts in verse 33. 21, Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Here another parable. Remember, because the first one was about the two sons. Here's the second. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Hey, wait a minute. Does any of this sound familiar from a 700-year-old love poem? He, he built a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, I hope this rings some bells, right? The lead, he's speaking these parables to the corrupt leaders of Israel. They knew Isaiah, and they probably felt superior to those Israelites of old. And I want you to notice a couple obvious things. The landowner owns it all. He's done everything necessary. Remember Isaiah's poem? What more could he have done? This is a very expensive undertaking. And he built it all, and he carefully cultivated it. And then we're told that uh, he built it as an investment property. This is, uh, this is commercial real estate. He leased it to some tenants. He's not going to live there. He lives far away. But he arranges with tenant farmers to be what you might call the, the stewards, hmm? the managers of the property. The idea is simple. They will work the land, and they will pay rent, and that rent will come as a portion of the produce. Okay? Everybody understand the setup? The fruit is what he's after. The mishpat and... Uh, Tzedakah, right? He, he, he wants the fruit. Now, this is not an unusual setup at all. When Jesus told this parable, so far, everybody's with him. Very common. Lands around Galilee had lots of these tenant farmer setups, and the landowners lived somewhere else. They lived off in Rome or in Caesarea. No problem. Ever, ever, all that. But they would, have they would have understood what happens next as well. Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, <laughs> to which you should say, well, yeah, all this makes sense so far. When it's time for the investment to yield its fruitful return, the owner sends his servants to collect what's rightfully his, his fruit. Who owns the land? The landowner. Who owns all the fruit? <laughs> the landowner. He's come for what's his. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, I'm going to give you three explanation points and an application at the end of this. Three explanation points and an application. This is explanation point number one, and it may be super obvious, but write it down anyway. <laughs> the owner owns it all. <laughs> explanation point number one, the owner did everything for the stewards to set them up to thrive. It may be stating the obvious, but they were set up with a vineyard. They were set up with protection. Did you notice he set up a fence around it, which would have been good for protection? He set them up with the means of production. They would have never been able to uh, uh, have this uh, economic sustainability, but the capital was given to them. The means of production, the wine press with the chambers and all that, the watchtower for protection, not only to store their stuff, but to have shelter themselves. This watchtower, this is a great setup. Culturally, this all made sense to the original hearers. There were lots of wealthy landowners in Galilee who would set up these farms, as I said. They would live somewhere else. But this is a win-win. I want you to see, this is not a bad setup. This is a win-win for the tenant farmers. They don't have enough capital themselves to buy their own vineyard yet, so they're leveraging other people's money to help themselves thrive and succeed. 
for no money down, right? They, they just pay the investor his share. And look, the investor doesn't even ask for an advance because he realizes you, you don't have anything. So in due time, after two or three seasons, I'll come collect rent, and then you just, you just pay out of the overflow and abundance of essentially what I've set you up with. It's, it's, it's not a bad arrangement, which is why, hmm? which is why we are not prepared at all for what happens next. When the servants arrive, verse 35, the tenants took his servants, and they apparently sent three of them. They beat one, they killed another, and stoned another. Whoa, whoa, what? That escalated quickly. Now, is Jesus referring to something that happened? I mean, this seems like a hard right turn. Is this something that the tenant farmers back in the day would have done? I mean, if you have a piece of commercial real estate and you've been set up and you have a good agreement and a lease on the first of the month when the landlord comes by, I mean, is that unhurt? I mean, maybe the tenant farmers would have fantasized about doing that uh, to the rich landowner. But there's nothing to suggest that they had been wronged in any way. Wow. Okay, so how does the owner respond? Verse 36, again, he sent other servants. Well, I hope he sent them armed. (laughs) It doesn't say he sent them armed. He just said more numerous. He sent other servants more. He just sent more. And y'all, they did the same thing. They did the same to them. (laughs) So so now what? And here, the the listeners are are, are going, what? Wait a minute now, you, you, they, they've gone to collect, the, to, to collect what's rightfully theirs. They've set up for everything, and this is not a bad arrangement. And you've, you've beaten and stoned and killed, and now you've done the same thing to more. What's going to happen? Surely he's going to get the law on his side. He's going to get the military on his side. He's going to march in, and he would be completely just to do it. And he's going to march in, and he's going to, instead, no one is prepared for verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, at this point, the listeners go, okay, th- th- that's absurd, right? Now we've gone into uh, uh, borderline absurd, Jesus. This, th- th- this story, what on earth kind of owner would do this? You're going to send your son? They, they, they sent all this group of servants twice, and they've come back without their life, and now you're going to send your own son? You're almost dreading. You can imagine they're cringing as Jesus says how this story, you know how it's going to play out. And sure enough, verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. Why would killing the son, why would that lead them to believe that all the inheritance that was going to come to the son would be theirs? Maybe, the, maybe they thought the vineyard was his inheritance, and so they would just take that. I, but sure enough, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Can, like, can somebody explain? How, how do you get to a place where they thought, well, if we kill the son, this will all be ours. How do you get to that level of delusion? This is insane. It's completely illogical. Something has shifted. They went from it's a fair contract to if we kill all the servants and ultimately the owner's son, that, how do you get from there to there? There's only one thing that could explain that kind of behavior. Somehow these tenants got it twisted in their heads that it was all theirs. That's explanation point number two. Somehow, these tenants got it twisted in their heads (laughs) that it was all theirs. Something snapped. 
to where they begin thinking not we are entrusted as stewards over what belongs to another, but rather it's all ours. Something shifted. Well, did you notice that uh, in verse uh, 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I know it's a small detail, but it is interesting that their hearts are so wicked and filled with evil, but they know that if they kill him within the vineyard, uh, his blood would make their wine ceremonially unclean. So it just strikes me that they take him outside the fence of the outside the fence of protection, outside the fence incidentally that the owner put up for their own protection. They removed him outside the fence, and that's where they did their deed and killed him there. Well, Jesus doesn't. I mean, he doesn't have to finish the story. Well, I mean, he asked, "What should the owner do?" But he doesn't finish it. He kind of lets the chief priests and leaders finish the story. So he asks them a question. Remember, he's talking to these corrupt leaders of Israel. So verse 40, when therefore, you, you guys finish the story. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks, what, what will he do to those tenants? It, it sounds a little like Isaiah's poem. Come judge between me and the vineyard. Y'all, you know this isn't right. Remember when Isaiah says, judge between me and the vineyard. What? what so they say what's obvious. Verse 41, he'll put those wretches to a wretched end. He'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And then he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. He is after that, that fruit. Okay. Everybody got it? Everybody got the parable? Let's pause and just, uh, just take stock in the parable. You can uh, answer these uh, out loud, but you probably won't since I tricked you with the Song of Solomon thing and uh, you haven't forgiven me yet. But uh, if you want, uh, let, let's just go through these. Uh, so who in the parable, uh, Jesus is talking about, who's the owner? Who's the owner? Let's just fill these in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. God. Uh, who's the vineyard? Okay, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> uh, the vineyard would be like Israel or God's kingdom, Right? Is that, is that fair? Is, is the vineyard, just like in Isaiah, right? This is God's kingdom, right? And so he's, he's in, uh, well, uh, and what's, oh, by the way, what's the fruit he's after? What's the fruit in this? I mean, the, the, what he's coming to collect. If, he's, if God has set up God's kingdom for all that they need to produce, what's the fruit he's after? So, yeah, righteousness and justice. Uh, uh, tzedakah and uh, mishpat. Exactly, yeah, very good. Who are the tenants? Elders, chief priests, yeah, Israel's corrupt leaders, good, yeah, 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 right? See, instead of thinking that they're the stewards over the temple system, they think, no, we're, we're owners of this. And so those servants that God sends to the vineyard, who are the servants? The prophets, that's exactly right. Yeah, the prophets God sends. And how did they treat the prophets over and over? You find out they, they mistreated the prophet. They ignored them. Now, I'm going to give you a little Hebrew lesson here. Who, um, who's the Ben? See, uh, the Hebrew word for son is a word you know. In fact, some of you are named Ben. Any Bens in here? Any Bens? Hey, congratulations. Yeah. You're, um, you're in this story. The son is the Ben. How did they treat the Ben? Who is the Ben? Who's the Ben? Okay, let's all do it together. Who's the Ben? Yeah, because the answer is always Jesus. Okay, if you ever, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then who are the, now this one's interesting. At the end of the story, right? And so they, they, they kill the prophets, and then ultimately he sends the Ben, Jesus, thinking, well, they'll, they'll respect my own son, my Ben, and they kill the Ben. And so when he asks the teachers of the law, so what, what should happen? They're like, he's going to put a wretched end to these wretches, and he's going to give the kingdom to others. So who are the others? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, let's, hmm, uh, hmm. That one's interesting. Jesus answers who the others are 
with, it looks like he's changing gears, changing topics, but he answers the question of who the others are in verse 42 and following. Look at this. He, he, it looks like he suddenly switches topics. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? <laughs> I'm sorry, you have to laugh over and over. Jesus, when he talks to the corrupt leaders of Israel, he keeps asking, do you guys ever read the Bible? <laughs> Have you not read the scriptures? And here he's quoting a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. At first you think, whoa, 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 Jesus. Uh, you were telling a story about a landowner whose servants and sons were rejected. Now you're talking about a rejected stones. Well, uh, come on, you're changing gears here. And, and you're, you're, he's applying it to himself. He's saying, I'm that stone. Now, a little history here, you know this. Imagine the Temple Mount. Imagine this massive building, and it's resting on these massive cornerstones. Not only are they load-bearing, but they're very beautiful. They're, they're very noticeable. Imagine you're walking by the corner of the Temple Mount, all that pressure and all that weight on that cornerstone, 15 feet, wa- 15 feet long, and it's right there at eye level. This is, this is the one, you know, so when you're going to the quarry, you can imagine the architects meeting with the masons and the subcontractors, and they're going, that one will do. That one will do. Man, these are massive rocks. You did a great job. But that one, that one's cracked. It's broken. It's unsightly. Eh, throw that one away. I don't even want it in the temple uh, mount that we're creating. And, and this one will do, and this one will do, and not that one. And, and Jesus says, <laughs> he uses this image. He's saying, not only did you reject, so that stone you rejected, not only did it belong as one of the stones, you actually rejected the centerpiece, the chief most visible cornerstone that could bear the weight of the whole thing. You actually rejected the chief cornerstone because it didn't look like what you thought it was going to look like. And that he applies to how the leaders of Israel looked at the Messiah. They looked at all these other uh, leaders and all these other religious people, but when it came to Jesus, in spite of what John the Baptist said, in spite of what everybody said, in spite of, haven't you read your scriptures? They said, nah, we don't even think Jesus is a good man. We think he's an evildoer. We, we don't even think he's a prophet. And Jesus is saying, not only have you rejected Jesus, you're going to find out he was not only a good man, not only a prophet, he was the son of God. He was the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Is it not marvelous? So watch how he ties all this together. The story of the rejected son, now the story of the rejected stone. And this is all part of Jesus, his own poetic brilliance. Just like Isaiah ends with this little couplet. Look at Jesus' poem. Does anybody remember the Hebrew word for son? Very good, Ben, yeah. So the word for stone, and almost every commentator points this out, it almost works in English because you got sun, stone, you got the S-O-N, but the Hebrew word for stone, eben. Jesus is good. (laughs) He's saying the rejected Ben has become the vindicated and risen eben. Got it? So this is my final explanation point. Jesus predicts the rejected Ben will prove to be the victorious eben. What does he mean? This current system of Israel's corruption will fall, he's saying. And I keep referring to this, but I think he's talking about the temple in 70 AD. He's saying that's on its way out. But I, Jesus, am going to be the new, the cornerstone of a new community, a new temple. And I'm going to take the leadership from these corrupt leaders, these tenant farmers. I'm going to take 
that leadership from them, and I'm going to organize God's people around me. And in this new group of people, it will be made up of, and I heard some of you say church, some of you say Gentiles, some, but it will, the point is it's not going to be made up of a particular race or ethnicity, but now it's going to be a new community of God's people are going to be organized around me, Jesus, made up of both Jew and Gentile, watch this, not dependent on race or ethnicity, but on faith. And I'll be the cornerstone around which this new community is built up. Or again, as he says it, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This new people, Jew and Gentile together, united around Jesus. Jesus is speaking to these leaders. He's pleading with them, don't ignore this word of peril because he knows what's coming in 70 AD. Don't don't do that. Verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stakes are very high. What will you do about Jesus? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived, I love this, he was speaking about them. You ever leave a social setting and only later you're like, hey, wait a minute, they were talking about me. (laughs) This is a great moment where it's like, wait just a minute. Yeah, yeah, he's talking about you. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. At the height of um, messianic fever after the triumphal entry, how do you arrest a person that the crowds think is a great prophet? Answer, you don't. And they didn't. Well, I want to close by summarizing this parable as a, really what Jesus did, he gave one of the most concise summaries of salvation history. And I want you to think about that. Do you ever think about the entire story of the Bible laid out? This parable sort of lays it out, doesn't it? Douglas O'Donnell writes that salvation history like this. He says, what's the story Jesus is telling of salvation history? The story is simply and sadly that God so deeply loved the world that he chose Israel from among the nations to bless the nations. He tenderly brought them to life. He cared. He nurtured them to health. That's all that stuff about. He built a wine press, put a fence around them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He gave them the law. He set up his city. He built a temple. He prepared an altar. Then he sent his prophets to reap what he'd sown. But the leaders of the people persecuted and killed the prophets. Then, in his great patience, God sent more prophets. The same fate met them. Finally, he loved Israel so much, he sent his own son, Jesus. And Israel's leaders plotted, arrested, and killed the Son of God. And he was killed outside the vineyard, wasn't he? Or as the book of Hebrews says, they crucified him outside the gate. They took him outside the city walls and killed him. But the story's not over. There's a coming judgment on Israel's leaders and all who follow their lead, referring to the destruction of the temple, ultimately the final judgment. And in the place of that temple is Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone either saves or crushes. It either stays in place as the cornerstone on which you build your fruitful life, or the stone is pushed out of place and becomes a stumbling stone that rolls over and crushes to dust all who oppose it. That chief cornerstone has now risen, vindicated, and gathering this new community all around himself. And that's it. That's the parable of the tenant farmers explained. But remember, how do you apply it? Remember who it was told to. It was told against the elders and leaders of Israel. I have never been a chief priest of Israel or an elder. You have not either. So what does this have to say to us? Well, the owner did everything for the stewards to set them up for success. Somehow the tenants got it twisted that it was theirs. And Jesus predicts the rejected Ben will prove to be the victorious Eben. You might say, it's about fruit. He wants his fruit. So what went wrong? I want to apply it like this. 
The problem was when the tenants began, little by little, maybe it, maybe it started a little bit at first, maybe they started talking to one another, but over time, they started to think they're the rightful owners of all this. And as they would look around at that farm and they would look around at that vineyard, they started to think, you know, we're entitled to this. We're entitled to all of it. And who is this landowner? You know, we don't see much from him anyway. You know, honestly, we're doing all the work here. This should just be ours. You see that? Little by little, how easy it is to slip into the mindset that really it's about, it's about me. All this is mine. And forget, really, who built that watchtower? Who built that fence? When it comes to fruit, how do I bear fruit in my life? I have found I bear the most fruit in my life when I start to see that this is not my life. I'm bought with a price. It's not my church, ultimately, right? It's not not my family. It's not not mine to run. These are what? These are gifts, y'all. So here's how I want us to apply this. Here's how I want us to walk out of here with that parable in our heads. I believe I am at my worst when I think this whole life belongs to me. And I'm, about, and I'm at my best when I know life is a gift. It's a gift. Start thinking about how that applies to every area of your life. When you think about your job, how does that change how you go to work in the morning, right? I, I, it's about me. Why aren't these people serving me? I'm in, you know they're lucky to have me. All that may be true. You may have a very good place to work. You may have a very negative place to work. But how could you change the temperature of that when you go in and you say, God, ultimately, you have me here for your purposes. This is going to be about you, not about me. How would that have changed the chief priests? I mean, think about it. Over time in the temple, they started thinking this was their temple. And these sacrifices and this stuff coming in, this all belongs to us. And Jesus is pleading with them. He's saying, where did you get this in your head? This was yours. You're a steward over the house of God. How would that have changed? It could have changed the chief priests and the elders and the way they look at it. How will this change how you use your own body? 1 Corinthians says, don't you know the reason you flee sexual immorality is because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. See? How would this change the way you treat your family? They're a gift. They're a gift. It's not about me. Oh, how quickly entitlement sets in. We look at that and we go, how could these tenant farmers have gotten so twisted that they would beat up and kill the messengers of God? They would resent any truth in their life. We all know how. It happens when you begin to go from, this is all a gift, God. I'm just a steward over it to, it's mine. Therefore, I'm entitled and I'm owed. Oh, we're at our worst when we're rocking around going, I'm entitled and I'm owed. But we are at our absolute best when we're walking around going, it's all a gift. You don't have to do this. It might be awkward. It's probably better if you don't do this. But those of you who are married, you could turn right now to your spouse and say, it's not about what you're doing for me or not doing for me. It's not about what I'm entitled and why aren't you doing this. You might just look at them right in the eyes and go, baby, you're a gift. Yeah, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But do you see my point? Do you see my point? How does it change your marriage? When you say, it's all gift. It's a gift. How does it change your parenting? 
when you think about it that way, it's not so crazy that these tenant farmers were able to do some really wicked things. Why? Because of a really wicked shift in their mind from it's all gift, right? You say, well, no, you don't know about where I work. You don't know about my job. You don't know about my, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, <laughs> if you say, well, you know, they owe me at my job and I, I deserve more and I've done this and I've done that. Who gave you the brains to do your job? Who opened the doors of education and opportunity for you to get your job? <laughs> they say in Oklahoma, if you see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you know this, he had help. <laughs> I mean, are we going to walk around going, God, this is all ours. Every, every bit of money in my wallet, it's mine, God. Really, really, really? Whose is everything? Who? I'm at my absolute worst when I think all of life belongs to me. But when I say, you know what, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. Even my health, my life, it's not mine. It all belongs to you, God. And Jesus, I think, longed to get that across to the chief. He loved them. That's the, that's the thing. He loved them. And, you know, the musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. There's only one thing in this parable that absolutely does not add up. And I'm here to proclaim to you this morning that it's not supposed to. It is absolutely intentional, it is absolutely incomprehensible, and it is absolutely not by mistake. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. And the one thing that does not add up is this. What, what on earth kind of landowner, after seeing what they did to those servants, what on earth kind of landowner sends his own son? There's lots of landowners that might have accidentally sent the son, not knowing what kind of character there was. But the point of the servants, then the second service, servants, is that there's no mistaking what kind of landowners we're dealing with. Everybody clear? That clearly these are murderous, wicked, wicked people. So you tell me what kind of landowner. That's the part that you, you should explain the parable, you should apply the parable, but there's part of this you're never supposed to understand. And that's Jesus' point. He's not telling a story that illustrates how a businessman would act to protect his investment. He's telling a story about how a compassionate and loving God acts towards sinners. It doesn't make sense because it's unreasonable. Sin is unreasonable. This parable displays sin at its most unreasonable and love at its most incomprehensible. That is a head-scratcher. Those workers figured, well, if we kill enough prophets, he'll just leave us alone. But they didn't reckon on the kind of owner they have. They have an owner that won't leave them alone. They have an owner who has set them up for everything they need. And they have a love that will not let them go. They have a God who will give a relentless attempt to win them over. If he were just about the prophet, if he were just about the fruit in this story, he would have armored up, got an army, got the law, crushed those people, and taken the fruit. Obviously, he's not after his business investment. He must be after a relationship. See? He wants something more. And his hope was what? Not, then I can get my fruit. He says, then if I send my son. He doesn't say, then I can get my fruit. He says, then maybe they'll listen to me. His heart was for those people, and it still is. That part of the parable simply doesn't make sense. You say, well, what do I do with it? Here's what you do. You spend the next 10 billion years saying, amazing love, how can it be? That's what you're supposed to do with that. You're supposed to say, oh, how marvelous. 
Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. God, grant to us grace to trust you more and more. Grant to us that we would not be, oh, don't let us be at our worst where we're entitled and owed and everybody owes us. And don't, don't get that out of our hearts. Don't let us be like these wicked tenant farmers. Instead, God, fill us up so much with the good news of the gospel that you sent your son. Even while we were still sinners, you died for us. And every blood-bought, born-again believer has come to a place in their life where they've admitted they're, they're way too much like that tenant farmer in their sin. And for that, we need forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die on that cross at the hands of sinful man. Lord, it was my sin outside that city wall. Just like that tenant farmer, I can't distance myself from that heart attitude. I'm guilty of that. But your grace was sufficient for me. And so, God, I pray that grace, that gospel good news, would change our mindset, that we might take our hands off and realize that it's, it's all yours. We are stewards. We are managers of everything you've put in our life. Grant us that, Lord. If anybody here has not yet fallen in love with you, they've not yet followed you as Lord and Savior, oh, God, work on them. Convict them. Let today be the day where they receive you. Do what only you can do in every heart, every life. In Jesus' name, amen.